eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. So there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Saturday, September 25th. And today and tomorrow, I've got a great treat for you. It is my friend, Stacy Vanek-Smith. She is the host of NPR's The Indicator podcast, an amazing podcast. I love it. And she is also now the author of a new book. It's called Machiavelli for Women, Defend Your Worth, Grow Your Ambition, and Win the Workplace. Stacy and I go back a ways. Um, we met when I used to appear on uh, a marketplace radio program. We became friends. And it's just been a delight to watch her flourish. And she is younger than I am, as is almost everybody else. And she's just one of the, the greatest eggs in the whole financial journalism universe. And I'm so grateful to count her as a friend. And I'm happy that she is here today to talk about this book. So here is the first part of our interview with Stacey Vanek-Smith. How did you come up with this idea, with the concept at least of, of adapting the words, the thoughts of Machiavelli, who who, you know, doesn't have a great rap Terrible, right now. terrible reputation, I know. Um, well, the Machiavelli part actually came later. So initially, you know, I've just been reporting on business and the economy for a long time. And one of the issues that comes up in various ways is sort of women in and the economy and women at work. And because I am a woman in the economy, I think I probably took a special interest in it. And I did a few pieces that uh, I was I was doing a piece on the pay gap. So I was interviewing economists who sort of focus on the pay gap. I remember learning that it basically hadn't moved very much in 20 years and hadn't moved really at all in 10. And this is like women make 80 cents on the dollar uh, compared to men. For black women, it's like 63 cents. For indigenous and Latina women, it's 55 cents. I mean, the numbers are terrible. And I was like, how has this not moved in a decade? And then I started looking, and a lot of things haven't moved for a decade. Like 80% of CEOs are men. 90% of CEOs are white. 
hasn't really moved in a decade. And I was like, what is going on? I mean, meanwhile, like women and people of color are going to school in greater numbers. Like, Yeah, women- I just saw this actually. I just saw, got a report that women accounted for a record 59.5% of college students at the end of last year. Men made up just 40.5%. Yes. So isn't that crazy? It just it's it's sort of like I don't understand. We're putting it just felt like we're sort of putting something into one end of a machine. And the thing that's coming out is like it's like we're putting new stuff into the machine. Why is the same thing coming out for 10 years? Mm. So this was kind of rattling around in my head. And I had the idea for a book and I was talking with my editor and I said, you know, the problem is a lot of the advice that I have looked at is either very cringy kind of girl powery stuff that. I didn't really think I, I didn't like that advice, but it also didn't work for me. I did I did try some of it. Or also just advice kind of geared towards men mm-hmm. also really backfired when I tried it in a couple cases. You know, I feel like I don't know what to do. Like I sort of I could sort of see this data reflected in in my own career, in the in the careers of people around me. And I was like, you know, I just I felt like there was a gap. I wanted to read a book that would give me the actual information, like just give it to me straight, you know, like, so if you smile in in a job negotiation, it's more likely to go well, like that is sort of stomach turny information, but I just want to have it and I can decide what to do with it. And I felt like no one wanted to give that information because it's so uncomfortable, but right. so you I, don't want to yeah. say like, if you uh, listen, honey, pat, pat, pat on the head, if you just smiled a little more, cause then you feel like, Oh, I'm part of the patriarchy. It's terrible. It's terrible. Right? Yes. But I feel like it's much more terrible. And you're very familiar with these numbers that, you know, women, you know, retire with like one third, the savings that men do that mm-hmm. all like, women are living below the poverty poverty line in retirement in huge numbers. Women feel trapped in relationships and jobs because they don't have the money to feel comfortable making moves that they want to make. That is more troublesome to me. So, yeah, I was like, I'm just going to tell the truth of what I find in the research. And it was disturbing. Like, we're living in a system that is unfair and has a lot of biases and is unequal. And so the ways to navigate it are sometimes difficult. But that is, I feel, why Machiavelli is a good guide because that's kind of his thing, right? Like uncomfortable truths. (laughs) You're not trying to change the system. You're saying the system sucks and here are the tactics you need to use in order to actually navigate the system that sucks. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yes. That's exactly it. Yeah. Um, By the way, there's one part of this. I, I, you know, of course I read everything. Mark knows this, but I especially loved reading your book because I hear your voice and your voice is so great. You write, uh, cranky, entitled women won't get far. Explosive genius ladies will be sacked. Head in the clouds women with no social skills will be shunted to a windowless office in sub-basement C faster than you can say, quote, this is so effing unfair. I love that so much. And it is unfair, but what do we do? What are some of the things that you thought were open your eyes about connecting the unfair system and using some of Machiavelli? Tell us some of the things that were surprising to you as you worked through the book. The overarching lesson I took away from Machiavelli, and I think one of his best lessons, is to sort of when possible, because it is hard to detach yourself emotionally sometimes, just observe a situation and see kind of what you're dealing with. Get the lay of the land. So let's say you're in a situation where we'll take something small like meetings. You're in a meeting and you're always getting interrupted, having your ideas stolen, getting talked over. 
this is a very upsetting thing. This has definitely happened to me. You know, it is it is upsetting to be in that situation. It is an emotional situation. It does have big repercussions on a career after a while. So what do you do in that situation? I had tended to get very upset. And the solutions that I came up with came from a place of being upset and angry and outraged and like, who do they think I am? And you can't treat me like this, which was valid. Like, that's a valid emotional reaction. But it wasn't serving me in the long run. Like, what I really wanted was to feel heard and to feel like I had influence in that situation and in those meetings that I that my ideas resonated, that if they were good, they would get play and that they were being sort of taken seriously. And so when I looked th- through the lens of Machiavelli at that situation, then you have some options. So if someone interrupts you, like Ralph jumps in and interrupts you as you're saying an idea, I mean, you can do the thing that I have done, which is just be like, hey, you know, I was making a point here. This is this double bind that women and minorities and marginalized workers find themselves in all the time, where if you try to stand up for yourself, it doesn't play the way it would if you were a man. You're just in. A, so it's like you're sort of, well, if I don't react, I'm a doormat. If I do react, I'm a dragon lady. So what do you, you know, what do you do? I mean, Machiavelli makes all these observations that I sort of adapted to the workplace. But one of the ones that was my favorite was he makes the observation that if you stand up for other people who are getting interrupted, that that will actually increase your influence. It will make you stand out as a leader. And the people who you are standing up for, there should always be people, by the way, who have less power than you do. So if if someone interrupts the CEO, you should probably not say anything or people will think you're like a suck up. But if you stand up on behalf of like, you know, these people are always interrupting the intern. If you say, you know, listen, let's let Angela finish what she was saying you will just benefit. There are just upsides to that. So research has found that when women are sort of feisty and assertive on behalf of other people, there is not that backlash. There is not that feeling of like she doesn't handle herself well in meetings. You will be seen as a leader and the people you stand up for will be grateful, which is a good thing. And also you start to change the culture of the meetings in general. So that was one's very Machiavellian workaround. So, And you know what's so interesting is that you've read that study about women who are terrible negotiators for themselves, but for their teams, their oh, team yes. members, they are much better than men. They actually argue for raises on behalf of others better than they argue for raises on behalf of themselves. Yes. So the the workaround is, you know, think about what your colleague should be getting paid. Make a case for her and then just, you know, basically do a find and what is a find and replace with your name. And that's what you ask for. And that is the case you make. And in fact, research has shown that when women prepare in that way, uh, outcomes of the negotiation tend to be really positive. They tend to be much, much better than than when you're just preparing for, on behalf of yourself. Now, you have a whole chapter on confidence, and I find this to be very interesting. And also, so Claire Shipman blurbed your book, and she wrote a great book. And I actually interviewed her 
in front of a live audience for maybe American Express or some company. I can't remember where it was, but I I interviewed her and we talked so much about confidence. And you know what was fascinating to me? Because people who have confidence don't quite understand, like we look and I'm going to talk about me because I have confidence and I think it's all about me playing sports. I really do. I had and, And Claire and I had this whole long conversation about girls who play sports tend to rise up much more quickly than those who don't in the corporate world. So I look at someone and I say, Stacey Vanek Smith, unbelievable, fantastic professional. How could she not be confident? And I think, well, that's so weird. She's so amazing. And you say that there are studies that are showing that women are basically half as confident as men. Now, everybody has experienced this. Like these dopes are like, yeah, I'll just go take that job, even though I'd have no idea what that job is. And uh, yeah, I'm going to go do it. And CEO the woman, of WeWork. Look at that guy. Amazing. Oh, my God. I mean, but there's like, I've seen this a thousand times of pe- with people who say to me, like, well, you know, my boss asked me to take this job, but like, I didn't, I don't know how to do that. So I wouldn't do it. And meanwhile, 12 men would line up and be like, I'll do it. I have no idea what it is. Who cares? I'll do it. And what is it that gives them this confidence, even though they're actually not that talented? I mean, the short answer is I'm not sure. I think it's just cultural messaging. You know, I mean, women are taught to be self-deprecating, you know, supportive of other people, nurturing, I mean, kind of trained to be in a, in a background position. Men are are sort of taught to be assertive, independent, you know, to speak out, to stand up for themselves. These are the qualities that we tend to like in men versus the qualities that we tend to, quote unquote, like in women. Everyone, I think, has self-doubt and struggles with with self-confidence. But the issue is that I think sometimes those doubts get reinforced by the world around you and it kind of creates a negative feedback loop. For the book, I spoke with a woman, Neha Narkede. She's um, a founder of a unicorn company, one of the few female founders of a unicorn tech company called Confluent. And what she said is she was sort of rising up in the world of tech. She, she'd grown up in India. So she, this was sort of she kind of came to the U.S. and was observing the culture and tech from from a little bit of an outside perspective. So she had fresh eyes. And what she said was she just noticed that, you know, when men tried things that they hadn't done before, there was just a lot of positive reinforcement like, oh, man, you can do this. You got this. Go. And when women did, there was just a lot of doubt you know, it was like, well, like, I don't know, you haven't done this before. Like, this is kind of a new thing. Have you managed people before? And of course, the research has shown this for a long time. And when she told me this, I didn't find the information shocking. It's, it's, I was like, oh, yeah, that's true. But that has a huge effect. I mean, those little micro reactions that are, I don't think, intentional at all. But it's just people's doubts. And you sort of live with that in the early parts of your career when you're insecure and finding your way. You're getting a lot of like, well, you know, your work is good. I just, I don't know. And meanwhile, Ralph, who's, let's say, doing exact work at exactly the same level, is is maybe not getting those doubts, is getting a lot more support. You say that you should pair, one way around it is to pair confidence with modesty. Tell me how that would work in practical terms. Ex- explain that a little bit. One of the the people I spoke with for the book is a gender researcher and legal scholar named Joan C. Williams. And Joan was in academic law. 
And she said the culture where in one of her workplaces was just very braggy. You know, people were like, well, I just published a paper in whatever. And, you know, they were just bragging about professional accomplishments all the time. Mm-hmm. And so she joined in. She said she noticed that she just it didn't seem like people liked her at work and she couldn't figure out what was going on. So she sort of she read a bunch of gender research and started experimenting with different things. And one of the things she said she stopped doing was was bragging. She just stopped. Um, and she's like, I figured my work speaks for itself. That really resonated with me because I had read in a negotiation book, I went into a negotiation, oh my God, I had read in a book that one of the things you should do in the negotiation is sort of like swagger in and be like, well, I just want to, like, before we get started, I just want to point out that I've produced, you know, 20% more than last year. And, you know, sort of, kind of lay out like, you know, eight reasons why you should just find me impressive. And I did that, Jill. Oh, my God. It was the worst (laughs) idea. It was so bad. My manager looked at me and was like, wow, you really think a lot of yourself. (gasps) Oh, no. And I don't remember anything else that happened. I asked for no raise. I think I just said I don't remember anything that came up in my feedback review. I was just like, Oh, crap. Like, I just knew, like, it had landed all wrong. You know what I mean? And I felt so weird about it. But I was like, you know, I've got to do this. So for me, it does give me, and this is maybe a weird reaction, but for me, it does give me confidence to know that this is just a systemic problem, that Mm. it's not my work, it's not personal to me, that these are just reactions that people have, often unconscious reactions to women, to people of color, to marginalized workers. Their work is just viewed differently. And the fact people are critical of you or questioning you, it is not personal. You are just dealing with things that like the most amazing, transplendent, awesome, brilliant women have dealt with, you know, for the last for decades and decades. That's part one of Machiavelli for Women. The author, Stacey Vanek-Smith, will be back tomorrow, and we are going to cover a lot of ground. I love this book. It is a fun read. It's really, it's not so proscriptive that in a way that's like, oh my God, you have to do this. this. It's like actually things you can do in your life. So I very much encourage you to check out the book, Machiavelli for Women. And of course, tomorrow we'll have part two of our interview with Stacey Vanek-Smith. As for today, well, do me a favor. Put your hands metaphorically on someone's back. It will really make that person feel better, and it's likely to make you feel better. Okay? Grit, growth, grace. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.